Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome one and all to the Storybox podcast. Place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning, growth, and if you want to improve your life. My name is Jay Phantom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people all over the world of every profession. I'm grateful and truly blessed that you're here today and that you've decided to listen in. Now let's dive into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Welcome everyone back to the Storybox podcast. If you are new to the show, just want to say welcome. I am thrilled that you have decided to show up today, especially for this episode, because my next guest has an incredible, incredible story that I know is going to move many of you. His name is Sean King. Now, for those of you who don't know who Sean is, he is more, to me at least, he's more than just an activist, a humanitarian, and journalist. He is someone that has lived through a horrific time uh, and period really towards racism. And he suffered this horrendous uh, event in his life where it was just shocking. Honestly, it's hard for me to really talk about what actually happened, Uh, but we do dive into it on this episode. But as a speaker, Sean King offers an, an articulate and historical grounded take on the most pressing problems of the day, which happens to be racism still. And he has now spoken in 35 states on over 100 colleges, camp, campuses, in jails and prisons and in corporate boardrooms, always calling for us to be better and do better As a writer, he has written an astounding 1,500-plus articles on injustice since 2014 and gives morning commentary on the legendary Tom Joyner show, um, heard by 6 million listeners in over 100 cities. Sean might be new for many of us, but he has been on this path his whole life. In 1999, Sean became the youngest student government president elected at Morehouse College since Dr. Martin Luther King was a student there in 1947, which is a great achievement to say so the least. Before he was ever known nationally, Sean was a popular high school um, history and civics teacher in Atlanta, then a traveling teacher and counselor at a dozen different jails, prisons, and youth detention centers in Georgia, speaking and teaching five times a day, five days a week for many, many years. Sean started and and pastored a church in inner city Atlanta 
and launched several award-winning social good campaigns that raised millions of dollars for causes around the world. See, what I mean, Sean, is more than just an activist and writer. He does so much for the community and his message is really being heard by so many people. This generation has its own set of challenges, challenges for which we need real and applicable solutions. Now, Sean asks us all a very important question that we should be asking ourselves more in depth. What's my best contribution to this world today? Now, I could go on and on and on about what Sean does and the impact that he's had in this world presently, but what I will say to you is this. Ask yourself, what am I doing today that is going to help bring this world into a better place? What is my set of values and belief systems? I know what mine are. Can you ask yourself the same question and really have an answer to it? Now, this is a conversation about injustice, the kind of uh, hatred that it goes on in this world. And I wanted to bring Sean on to share the real the realness that is going on. And it's, this might be very confronting for some of you listening. If you do get something from this, please, please share this one around. Let everyone know uh, of Sean's story and, and the impact that he is having in the world today. Please leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts if you do enjoy this episode. I tried to ask impartial questions, questions that I have that, I guess many people around the world do have, and I think Sean answered them the best of his ability, okay? I bring people on from all walks of life and experiences, doesn't matter uh, their belief system or whatever it is, but it gives them an opportunity to share what their power is. And if you don't believe it, please still be kind. Don't get angry or upset. Just we could all use a little bit more kindness and acceptance in our life today. So without me going on and on and on, let's dive into the story box and hear the humanitarian, the activist, and the man with the incredible story that is going to move you today, Sean King. Yeah, thank you, man. Glad to be here with you. And, and it's funny because um, it's one day for you and another day for me. <laughs> and so uh, it, it, technology is amazing that, uh, that we can be so far apart in the world, but still uh, see each other face to face, hear each other in real time. And so glad to see you, glad to talk to you. Same here, man. Like I was saying to you off air that I'm a huge admirer of your work. I've been following you now for a little over a year and love everything that you're doing. I've seen the growth and the progression and all the work that you're doing is quite admirable, man. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and, and the giving back. Um, Thanks. Really, yeah, you know, really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it, man. And so I'm, I'm glad we could jump in. And, and social media doesn't allow people to share their story in a real human way. And every now and then you get to do that. But when we reduce each other to tweets or Facebook posts, uh, there's something that a podcast can do when you hear someone's voice. There's a there's something about hearing someone's warmth, someone's sincerity, someone's intention that kind of gets lost on social media. And so anytime I get a chance to really unpack some of who I am and unbox some of who I am, I, I want to do it. I love it, man. Well, I can't wait to unbox more of your story shortly. Before we do that, I, I normally have one question 
that I love asking all my guests to start off with, which is what does success look like to you? That's a great question. Um, in some ways, that's a moving target for me in a lot of ways. Um, and there are probably two or three ways that I look at that. Uh, first is something that has very little to do with my career and my profession. I still, when I wake up in the morning, I don't see myself as an activist or as an author. I really see myself as a husband and father, and that's a huge part of who I am. I'm 41, but I've been with my wife since I was 16. Wow. So we've been together for almost 25 years. Uh, we had kids when we were really young. And so our oldest is 21. We have five kids. And a huge part of what success is for me is being a, a supportive, active father and husband engaged to them in ways that, that matter to them. And that doesn't always translate on social media, like because of because of security threats and things that I experience, I don't share a lot of pictures of my family. And ultimately, it causes people to not really understand how important my family is to me. So there's a personal side of me that values that and, and thinks of success in how healthy and well and happy and whole uh, is my family. Now, professionally, I have so many goals that we're pursuing in, in this Black Lives Matter movement that we're in. There are campaigns that I, political campaigns that I'm a part of that we hope to win. And I think success for me, if I had to boil it down, really looks like moving the needle on the issues that I care about the most. And they're really two issues that are deeply connected that I fight for every day. And in the United States, we have a crisis of police brutality. And we have something that we call mass incarceration. I don't know what it's called in Australia, but it's, it's in the United States, a crisis over the course of any given year, nearly 10 million people are in jail or prison here. That's not only the most of any country in the world, it's the most of any country in the history of the world. And so success for me looks like making that number smaller. And, and it looks like lessening the number of people who are uh, either assaulted or killed by police. And you can measure that. And so I, I try not to have goals that you can't measure. And as best as I can, we try to evaluate are these problems that we care about, are they getting better? Are fewer people in jail? Are fewer people being harmed by police? And if not, how are we failing in that pursuit? And what can we pivot and change and adjust? And so it's a, it's a battle that I think I'll probably be in for the rest of my life. And I've adjusted myself to seeing the work I do as not, not just what can I do today or tomorrow, but we now have goals that we know may take 10 years, 20 years to achieve. And it, and that changes the way you do the work. Mm. I'm curious about why America is the, out of all the countries in the world, why America is the, is the one that has the most incarcerations. Mm. And what have you noticed about, I, I guess, um, dealing with police brutality? Where did that actually come from? 
And yeah, no, how I could ex- go about fixing that. Yeah, I could explain it really well. And there, there are three books that I rely on that I would recommend anyone read. And all three of them are available in Australia and around the world, even in many different languages. And these three books kind of form even my understanding of why the United States has such a horrible problem with mass incarceration and police brutality. It really starts with the institution of slavery in America. And from 1619 until the 1860s, tens of millions of Africans were shipped into the United States like cargo. They were products that you could buy, sell, trade. Um, Human beings were literally worked to death from the day they were born until the day they died, not for a short period of time, but for generations. We're talking about nearly 250 years of American history. Our, Our capital, the literal United States Capitol building, was built by enslaved people. And many cities around this country were built by people who were fully enslaved. Now, if, if, if me or you, Jay, learned that someone was enslaved next door to us today, we might literally barge in the house to save them. Like if we would, we would do anything we could to save someone. Well, for 250 years, that was the American reality, reality. And it, 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 it created our economy, our social structures. It's baked into the fabric of our constitutions and our documents. And these three books that I recommend people really read explain how that old institution that was here for 250 years, how it shapes the future that we and the present that we're in now. Uh, The first book is called Slavery by Another Name, and it won um, the biggest prize you can win here. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, It's by um, a journalist named Douglas Blackman. And what it says is from the the American Civil War in, in the 1860s until the 1950s, there was a new form of slavery in the United States that took the place of the old form of slavery. And it was jails and prisons. Mm. And if you look before 1865, which was the American Civil War, hardly any African-Americans were incarcerated. Either you were free and black or you were enslaved and black, but very few people at all in the United States were in prison. But in 1865, and for the next almost 100 years, jails and prisons took the place of slavery, and corporations made tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars off of prisons. The next book would be The New Jim Crow, which is maybe one of the most important books of the whole Black Lives Matter movement, and all of us see it almost as a as a Bible for this movement. It helps us understand it. Michelle Alexander, the the lawyer and scholar who wrote that book, she really, she starts off where that last book ends. She explains how from 1950 until the modern times in America, how mass incarceration, jails and prisons exploded 
and it became such a deep part of American society. And um, the last book, I want to make sure that I get the name of this right. Um, I'm, I'm going to look, literally look it up while we're, while we're talking here. It is, it is called, let me see, and it just won the Pulitzer Prize as well. It's called Locking Up Our Own. And it's by James Foreman Jr. And it explains this kind of recent era that we're living in and how the United States kind of has an addiction to jail and prison and uses it to solve every problem. And so those three books, I see they're not a trilogy, but I see them as a trilogy that really get to how incarceration and police brutality is just an extension of this system that we have to jail so many people, to arrest so many people in our cities and in our states here. It means that police are arresting thousands and thousands of people a day, every single day of the year. And some of, because they are arresting so many people for so many things, some of those things are going, some of those moments are going to be brutal. Some of them are going to be fatal. And the United States police here kill on average about four people a day. And, and some countries don't have four people a year. And we have this every single day, year in, year out. And the, United, the police in this country kill more people than police killed in apartheid South Africa. Like, that's how bad it is. And we have more people jailed, not just total people, but percentage of people jailed than apartheid South Africa had as well. And so it functions almost like an apartheid state where some people in the United States can grow and thrive without really experiencing the threat of mass incarceration and police brutality. But other communities are terrorized by it every single day. So. I know that's a long answer, but it's a complicated problem. And part of what I try to teach people is it also requires really complicated solutions. And some of why we haven't seen it just go away is because it's a, it's a nuanced, difficult problem to solve. And it took hundreds of years to build it. And we won't see it end in, in this year or next year. It's a problem that will probably take our lifetime to really solve. Is that your lifetime or is it more my lifetime or your kids? Lifetime? Well, I think, I don't think there's a future in this country without racism and racism is at the root of mass incarceration. And what I mean by that is mass incarceration and police violence are used as a tool for one group of people to have power to keep other people from ever having that power. And there was a time, even in, in the 90s and, and 2000s, where many of us thought one day, someday, racism in this country may not disappear, but it may, it may die out with older generations of people when they pass on. But what we've learned over the past few years here in the United States is that racism and bigotry are exploding across our country. And it's actually young people, um, people in their teens and 20s, young adults, 
who are advancing it. And so it's such a, it's such a central part of, a, of American life that some of these problems, I think, yeah, could, could always be a part of the country. But my hope is that we could actually have hard solutions to solve it. Like here's a quick illustration. In San Francisco, in the past year alone, they have reduced the number of people in their jail by almost 60%. Well, that's one city in just one year. Now, if that could be duplicated in other American cities, we might see the number of people locked up, you know, decline seriously. Now, does it mean we, we don't have jails, that we don't have prisons? I don't know that I see a future in this country without them, but we can drastically reduce the number of people in jail, the number of people in prison, and certainly reduce the number of people who are killed by police. So Australia also has police brutality. It's not on the scale of the United States, but in the United States, our police have a kind of shoot first, ask questions later type of mentality that most of the world doesn't have. And uh, it, it just causes a lot of pain. Mm. I could continue listening to you. Like, this is really interesting stuff. And I feel like people need to hear this. It doesn't get publicized all too much. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement seemed to come out of, I guess, um, the tragic death um, earlier this year. What is, for those people that don't really know about this movement, what is it? How does it help? bring down white supremacy or does it bring down white supremacy or is it more to the movement that makes the eye? Yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than, than makes the news or than trends on social media. Um, I would really take it back even to 2013. Um, that year there was a young teenage boy named Trayvon Martin who was killed in, uh, in his neighborhood in Florida he was walking in it. He was walking back home. Um, it was the NBA All-Star Weekend, which is a big celebration of basketball here in the United States. And he walked to a local uh, store to get himself something to drink and a snack. And as he was walking back home, a man in the neighborhood didn't recognize him and used that as an excuse to confront him. And he confronted him and killed him. And Three young black women uh, who were leaders that I didn't know, I'd never heard of them, didn't know their work, but they were friends, started posting on social media about what happened to this young man. And they said in their post that, that people were treating black lives like they didn't matter. And that following day, that phrase that they used ended up becoming a hashtag that they used and they, they had no idea that it would catch on, that it would become the name of a movement. But instead of just saying, Hey, people are treating black lives like they don't matter. One of them used the hashtag black lives matter. And it was just a way for them to give language to the violence that this young man experienced. And a full year later in 2014, there was this explosion of police brutality all over the country. And those same women again began using this hashtag that I had never seen until then. I didn't see it when they used it in 2013. 
And it made so much sense to me, to them, and to millions of people who said, you're right. Um, police and other people continue to treat black lives like they don't matter, like they're not valuable, like they're not meaningful. And so that phrase just summarized a deep frustration and emotion and made a lot of sense to many of us. It has now become a movement against mass incarceration and police violence, but against many things, against injustice in general. And uh, this year, uh, in the height of the pandemic, I live in Brooklyn, which is maybe the hardest hit part of the entire country. We've had almost 8,000 people who've died of the coronavirus just here in Brooklyn alone. And um, we, as we are fighting through this pandemic in, a, in this country, we experienced three horrible tragedies. Uh, one was the police murder of a man named George Floyd, who was killed in broad daylight in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Another was of an essential worker, uh, a woman named Breonna Taylor, who was shot and killed by police in her home. And then another was a man named Ahmaud Aubrey, who was chased and shot by three men as he was jogging um, in his neighborhood. And those three things back to back in the, that it, you have to also look at when it happened in the height of the pandemic as our country was already struggling with the coronavirus crisis, it just caused people to be pushed farther than they could handle. And protests broke out all over the world, including there in Sydney where you are, and, and of people just saying, it's too much, we've had enough, and, and we're demanding like deep systemic change. And, we're all grasping for straws here, man, where we're just trying to figure out what are the solutions uh, and how do we fight for them in a way that these things can one day cease from being our reality. And what happened to George Floyd in particular was so gross and grotesque and was shared so widely across social media that it was something that you, you just couldn't shake if you saw it that a man who was fully alive was begging for his life until he died right there on the, on the asphalt. And um, it just really sparked an anger and frustration and desperation in people. And uh, was a big part of kind of the explosion of protest all over the world. Mm. You've, you yourself, Sean, have experienced uh, brutality from white supremacists in the past. Are you able to share your story of what actually happened and what you learned as a result of going through those experiences? Sure. And it's, um, it's a big part of my story. And even I think a big part of why I take so much of even these stories of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, why I take them so seriously so I'm, I'm 41 now and I have to go back almost 25 years to the mid 1990s. I grew up in a small town in the American South in Kentucky uh, called Versailles, Kentucky. And 
I was born in 1979. And you have to kind of go back that far to really understand the way that we talk about race and racism, the way that we talk about people who may be multiracial or, or, or come from different ethnic backgrounds. Those things were very different in the 70s and 80s and even in the early 90s. And so this high school that I, uh, that I went to in Versailles had so much racism and bigotry, overt racism. Uh, I talk about this in my book where I, I had one day a, a, a racist white student throw a jar of tobacco spit like right in my face. And my, the high school I went to was so what we would call country that students were allowed to chew chewing tobacco in school and threw this whole jar of tobacco spit in my face. I had two different times where white students at my high school literally tried to run me over in their car. One time I was walking home from a high school dance and narrowly escaped being run over by a group of students. I reported it to the high school, to the police, and they did nothing. Another time, my friends and I were in our neighborhood and literally had to run onto the porch of a home in the neighborhood as a car, like literally drove up onto someone's yard trying to run us over. And then in, in March of 1995, I was brutally assaulted by a group of students there in my high school. And it was the culmination of almost two years of being harassed day in and day out. And it was so brutal that I missed the rest of my sophomore year and all of my junior year of high school. I had three spinal surgeries. I had fractures to my face and ribs. And I was not only broken physically, like I was just a deeply wounded child emotionally. Um, it took me years to fight through the, the physical trauma, but also the emotional trauma of it. and. Even though I, I hate that that happened to me, and if I could go back and undo it, sometimes I hear people say they wouldn't change anything about their life, and I, I never look at life that way. Like, I wish there was something I could do to have avoided that day. It caused me pain deep into my adult life. But because it did happen to me, it shaped me in ways that I never could have planned or predicted. It it caused me to have a real heart for people that are in pain, not just for people that have experienced violence, but it just caused me to be sensitive to people who were hurting emotionally and physically. It did cause me to have a huge heart for justice, like having experienced something so painful and so awful. And none of the guys who did that to me were ever held responsible, held accountable. No one went to jail. And my mother and I fought for years to try to hold the school and the students and the, and the staff who did nothing to hold them accountable and nothing happened. And having gone through all of that as a teenager in the nineties, I, I can look back today and say that it really changed the entire trajectory of my life in ways that I never could have predicted. And so for most of the past 20 years, I've always been fighting to, to help people get justice in one way or another. And it's been just a huge part of my story. And uh, I think had 
had I not experienced that horrendous assault, I don't even know that you would know me right now. I, I, it, it just changed the entire arc of my life and story. And I cared about injustice in the way that the average person cares about injustice. But it kind of seared that into my heart and into my story in a way that I just can't shake. And in some ways now, as I try to pursue justice for a family or, or someone who's just been wronged in a horrible way, uh, in some ways, I'm, that's still me as like a teenage boy working through all of those, those things that happened to me. And um, so who I am today was, was deeply shaped by that, that moment, which probably only really took about two minutes. And, you know, I have a whole chapter about it in my book, and the chapter may take 20 minutes to read. But the truth is, we're talking about a, like a micro moment. Like um, it was a, a short moment in one afternoon of one day that really changed my whole world and has a lot to do with why I do the work today. I don't think about it actively. Like it's, I think I've healed from it. I've, I've processed through it. But, and so when I get up and do the work I do, I don't think back about what happened to me, but it's, it's shaped my character and shaped what I care about in ways that I, I just can't shake. I apologize that you had to experience something so horrendous. I myself have never been, been through anything like that before. Um, I'm curious though, have you forgiven those young people for what they did to you? And most importantly, have you forgiven yourself? Well, you know, well, for myself, I don't, I don't see that I caused what happened there. And so I don't, you know, now there are mistakes that I've made in my life and you do have to work through those mistakes and find ways to forgive yourself. But the, uh, the young men who did that to me never sought forgiveness. And, and I really felt like what changed my my whole life, um, that they moved on from it. Like my guess was, a week or two after what they did to me that they weren't even thinking about it. Like, I don't think think they think about it now. Uh, They've, they've completely moved on in that sense. I, I don't hold an active grudge against, against them for what they did. I'm not pursuing justice for it in any kind of way, but it is still a wound. Um, it is still a, a wrong that I experienced that I never felt was was made right by those who did it or by the, the school and others who protected them from it. And so um, I don't think forgiveness is what I have done. Uh, there's something probably a half step above or below forgiveness is where I am. Like I, I don't have an active beef or problem with the people who did it they were young they and i know i know dumb stuff that i did when i was a young man um and if i had that active grudge it would just hold me back and i think i was probably 19 or 20 when i just decided to let that go and and that's a form of forgiveness uh forgiveness is 
is about letting go of the harm that someone caused you, even if they don't ask for it or even if they don't deserve it. And uh, I had to let go for myself. And, um, you know, I, but it caused me to have sympathy for people who've also experienced trauma and it's, it can be hard to let go. Um, and eventually if you're going to be healthy and productive, your life can't be rooted in the pain that you've experienced. No, I think it's important for people to understand that when you do go through a traumatic experience, the level of difficulty that comes with trying to heal from that sort of event. I know because at the age of six, and it's just me being real, um, I was sexually abused by a teenage boy. Mm. And, you know, you don't really understand it at that age until later on, until later on in life. And I was sort of living in a daze for quite a long time. And you just sort of had these flashbacks Mm. moments. And I had a choice. I was either going to go two ways. One, I was going to want to try and seek justice and try and uh, get this person, like it happened many, many years ago, get this person reprimanded for everything he did. Or I could choose to forgive and move on and accept the fact that it did happen. I can't change it. I can, I can choose to allow it to affect my actions in the present and move forward as best I can. Or I can use this story to help others that may be struggling with a similar burden because it can be a burden. You, you feel, you, I don't know about you, Sean, but I felt when I found out that it was real, I felt mm. like less of a less of a man. I felt like there was something wrong with me. But you were a victim in that. And, and I think when you're victimized as a child, if it's some type of violence or sexual abuse or assault, you don't have the tools and you don't have the worldview and the skills to process it. Our brains are still developing. How we see ourselves and how we see the world is all still developing. And that's why I was a counselor at a children's hospital for many years. And um, many of the children that we worked with there, this was a uh, a mental health facility for children, and many of the children had been sexually abused. And part of what I learned is, is that some trauma that you experience as a child can take your lifetime to work through. And we have to accept that that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so while what happened to you and what happened to me are different in some ways, we, our lives were interrupted with trauma that we didn't deserve. And I don't, I don't hold myself responsible for that. And just as, as you should, nor anybody who's listening, but you have to always find a way. Like I still ask myself, are there unhealthy ways that what happened to me may still manifest in my life? And how can I address that? Um, You know, like, you know, trauma, when we're when our brains are still literally forming 
um, can just shape us in, in, in deeply impactful ways. And sometimes sharing it out loud, uh, not only helps us, but it helps whoever's listening to understand, like, you can continue to live your life. You can continue to have meaningful relationships and you can, and you can still find a way to, uh, to endure the pain of it. And the pain doesn't disappear over time, but I tell people that uh, the sharpness of it goes away in some ways, at least for some of us. And uh, I also encourage people to have, um, to have help. You know, I've seen therapists and doctors and others who've tried to advise me on how to process the pain of what I've experienced. And, and it takes that. Mm. I'm grateful yeah, for the fact that you you shared that, man. And I well, think yeah, I'm grateful for you too, man. The reason why I asked about have you forgiven yourself is because I know for me, I didn't forgive for the fact that I was hurting myself with all these mm. thoughts and I wanted to, I hated, I, I wanted it to just sort of end, end the pain as best I could. So that's why... I say to people, have you forgiven you? And it's just as important as forgiving somebody else. And that takes time. It takes. Yeah. Maybe even more so, man, because, um, even what I said about, um, about the young men who did that to me, when I really realized that they had all moved on, they weren't thinking about like what for them was a tiny moment Mm. changed my whole world. And when I realized that these young men who who are now, you know, my age or older, that they didn't live their life constantly thinking about what they did to me, I had to also understand that I couldn't let what they did to me have so much power over me that I obsessed over it. Like I didn't even want it. I didn't want it even to become a daily part of my story. It is a part of who I am. And what happened to you is it's a part of who you are and, and we can't erase it, but it's not all of who we are. And I try to encourage people who've been victimized in one way or another to realize the work you do also doesn't even have to be about that victimization. Like you could, you could be a victim of violence or abuse and go on to do something completely unrelated to that. And that's okay. Mm. A lot of people feel the burden, and this is okay as well. A lot of people feel the burden to do something that's connected to the pain that they experienced. And I just try to tell people, you can if you want to, but you don't have to. Mm. And, um, you know, so what I do is connected to what happened to me. And that works for me, but it doesn't have to be that way for everybody. No. No, very true, very true. Um, Sean, I'm mindful of our time together today. Yeah, I have I have just a few more minutes, man, if if you want to talk through a, a few more minutes before we have to go. Sure, man. Two more questions for if you don't yeah. Real justice. This is a question that I know probably might take a while to answer and hopefully we might be able to come back one day. But true justice and achieving real justice in the eyes of I guess, man that is flawed in the first place. What have you discovered or noticed that is 
real justice, true justice, not something. And is real justice actually possible? Yeah. Yes and no. So I'll give an example of a case that I'm working on right now. There was a young woman in Louisville, Kentucky named Brianna Taylor, who was shot and killed by police in her home. She broke no law. She committed no crime. She, police never sh- should have even been in her home. Um, she should not have been shot. She didn't even deserve a day in jail. She didn't deserve anything. And sometimes we say, hey, we are fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor. And we say, and that's a, like we say these phrases, we're fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor, but Breonna Taylor is dead. And I, you know, I'm religious and her family is religious. We believe in heaven. We believe that she's there. But there is, there is really no justice for her on earth. I don't say that to say then, well, we shouldn't fight. What we're really fighting for, see, justice is the balancing of what was wrong. So something horribly wrong happened, and now we want to balance that out. Well, for Brianna's family, and I know her mother, Tamika, and her sisters, and her partner, Kenny, you can't balance that. She, is, she, is, she has been killed and is, and is buried and she will never have another living day on this earth. So there's no way to make that right. What we're actually looking for isn't really justice. What we're looking for is accountability. And we want to, and justice and accountability may seem like the same thing, but they're not. What we're saying is what happened to her was wrong. And the people who did that wrong need to be held accountable. And we try to figure out, well, what does that accountability look like? But even I have, I have worked with families and the police who killed their loved one was held accountable. And what I've realized is it still doesn't balance the scale. And so what I have found is more likely a, a form of justice would be changing the systems that cause and allow these things to happen to prevent them from happening in the first place. And justice would be this not happening anymore. And there's a form of, of justice that happened in Louisville. Uh, the city passed a law preventing police in Louisville, just in this one city, from barging into people's homes. They're not allowed to do that anymore. And had that been a law before Brianna was killed, she would still be here today and me and you wouldn't even know who she is. She would just be an everyday woman living her life, doing what she does. She wouldn't be famous. She wouldn't have pictures of her face all over the world. And that would be better. And, you know, a form of justice is preventing these things from happening. So that can't happen for Brianna, but it can happen for people that uh, whose lives we can keep uh, from being lost in the first place. So justice is, um, it's a lofty goal. It's, it is accountability, but it looks like changing the system. And that's a whole lot harder than just holding these officers accountable. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, thank you. Thank you for making that, I mean, thank yeah. you for making that clear. Cause I never looked at it like that before in my life. Um, and I've yeah, been trying to we, I think that we're question. using the word wrong, man. We're using, we say we want justice 
And, and, and I know why we use the word. I use it. It, it. it has now a lot of different meaning to it. But often what we're saying is we want accountability. We want change. And when we say justice, we kind of are using that word as a substitute for a lot of other really complex things that we're fighting for. Yeah, good point there. My final question for you, Sean, this is my all-time favorite question that I ask at the end of all my interviews. So you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Then ask me how in the world they got it all, we'll call it magic. But they just did and they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow. Man, I wish you had sent me that question in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, part of my struggle is I am often, even though we're establishing goals of what we hope to do five years or 10 years from now, I am living so much in today and in this moment that it's often really difficult for me to even imagine who I'll be or what I'll do. Um, I actually, I do want to live a long life and a lot of civil rights leaders and human rights leaders aren't able to do that Um, more than anything. And and I think this will probably really almost end where we started. If, if I live to be a hundred, as much as I hope with all of my heart that we've achieved deep change, that we've saved lives and altered the systems that cause people so much pain. I think more than any of that, um, I, I hope to have, that's 59 years away from me. I hope to have just a lifetime of happy memories with my wife, my kids. I've, the life that I live as a leader has some, in some ways made life hard for them. Like even right now we have security outside of our house to keep us safe. And it's, it's a stressful thing. And so I hope that for the last half of my life that is full of memories that are not as difficult and stressful uh, as life has been for these first 41 years. Um, I hope we're able to travel and see the world and um, less than I see the rest of my days as being about what I accomplish as a leader. um, I hope it's a story of, of who I was as a father, a grandfather, a husband, uh, a brother, a son. And uh, so I hope my future is more about family than it is about this fight for justice. I, I think I'll always be in this fight, but in some ways it's taken over my whole life and that's hard on everybody. I feel like I could talk to you for ages, man. Yeah, I'm glad that we got it. Yeah, I'm glad we got some time to... To, to, to be with each other and, and just share our stories, man. Thank you. Me too. Where can people find you, Sean, and connect with you and, and learn more about you? You know, uh, I'm on all the social media platforms, but uh, I, I spend a lot of my time on Instagram. And so if you go to Sean King, S-H-A-U-N-K-I-N-G, I'm there. Uh, you can learn more about the work that I'm doing uh, at grassrootslaw.org. And uh, that's grassrootslaw.org. 
And um, we're just fighting for change the best way we can. And so uh, let's keep on fighting, man. Well, I applaud you. I just want to acknowledge you, Sean, for everything that you you. are doing in the world, your story. It's inspirational and it's very challenging. So thank you so much for your time today and coming on the Storybox podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. Take care. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.